0: Microeconomics, macroeconomics. I studied both of these in my sophomore year of college. I was a business major. Why business? Because I didn't know what I wanted to be when I would grow up. Truth be told, I was just taking courses so I could play football. Uh, that's not much of a career track. Um, the fact that I grew up into something responsible is Story in and of itself, um, but macro, microeconomics, macroeconomics. A typical textbook would say something like this: Microeconomics is the study of how companies and households make decisions. Macroeconomics is the study of the economy as a whole. Think microscope, right, versus a, let's call it a macroscope for. Yes, I made that up, but you get the point. So last week, Jeff led us on an in-depth looking at Joseph and what God was doing in Joseph's life to prepare him for what was ahead. That was the micro level. That was a, a Joseph under construction. Summed up with these words from Martin Luther that's shared by Jeff, until man is nothing, God can make nothing out of him. Today we're going to look at the work of God, what he's doing in history, on a bigger level, in Egypt. The, mic, the macro level, the work in leaders and thus in nations. And we've seen this before, and I say we, I'm thinking of collectively we former Bereans. Uh, a few months back we were studying in the book of Mark. We saw God had moved nations in order to get Christ on a cross You know, at the time, the question we asked was, how do you get a Jew to a cross? And the context was in Mark 14. Jesus is headed to be crucified in accordance with God's will, in accordance with prophecy. Because through David in Psalm 22, 16, they pierced my hands and my feet. I count all my bones. They look, they stare at me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. And through Isaiah, Isaiah 53, verse 5, but he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Why is this significant, how Christ would die? Well, it's significant because uh, Jews did not crucify. Nobody gets pierced by stoning. David, when he penned Psalm 22, had never seen a crucifixion. He'd never even heard of a crucifixion. So, how do you get a Jew to a cross? Well, the history of the region and God's providence, control of the land of Israel, had passed from the Jews to the Babylonians, to the Medo-Persians, to the Greeks, and then to the Romans. This happened just as foretold by Daniel, as Daniel interpreted King Nebuchadnezzar's dream. Daniel 2, 32, the head of the statue was made of fine gold, its breast and its arms of silver, its belly and its thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partially of iron and partially of clay, representing the succession of all these nations. And it was fulfilled. So the Lord had moved and replaced empires in his cosmic place setting to have the Romans in control of the region. Now, countries conquered by Rome were governed directly by Rome, but sometimes, however, small sovereigns were left in possession with nominal independence. This was the case in Palestine. Though under Roman rule, Jews were able to maintain their Jewish structure under the leadership of their own high priest. Significantly, though, the Romans would not allow those ruling under their authority to put anyone to death. This authority to execute was reserved exclusively to the Romans themselves. So God's providence in moving chess pieces, God moved nations into place as to move people into place. So having obtained their illegitimate conviction, right, Matthew, or Mark, rather, Fifteen one, and binding Jesus, the Jews led him away and delivered him to Pilate. Pilate the Roman, Pilate who had authority to release or to put to death. And the Roman method of execution was crucifixion. Jesus delivered right on time, right on plan. Today we'll review another unfolding in scripture of how God was moving moving people into place, specifically Joseph into place, in order to not only move a nation, but ultimately to save a nation, the nation of Israel. Now last week, Jeff walked us through the first few verses of Genesis 41, and let's go there. Verse 1. Now it happened at the end of two full years. Two full years after what? Well, after Joseph... Interpreting the dreams of the chief baker and the chief cupbearer, and after two years of being forgotten. At the end of these two years, Pharaoh had a dream. And Jeff walked us through that dream, and then Pharaoh awoke, and behold, it was a dream. Verse 7, verse 8, now in the morning his spirit was troubled. So he sent and called for all the magicians of Egypt and all its wise men, and Pharaoh told them his dreams. But there was no one who could interpret them to Pharaoh. Then the chief cupbearer spoke to Pharaoh. And in verse 12, he says, Now a Hebrew youth was with us there, a servant of the captain of the bodyguard. And we related our dreams to him, and he interpreted them. To each one he interpreted according to his own dream. And just as he interpreted for us, so it happened. Now, the cupbearer says, there's a Hebrew youth here. This Joseph under construction had been placed by God in this cold, damp pit of a prison, dungeon. Interestingly, the psalmist details this, referring to God's hand in Psalm 105, starting at 16. And he called, he, God, called for a famine upon the land. He broke the whole staff of bread He sent a man before them, Joseph, who was sold as a slave. They afflicted his feet with fetters. He himself was laid in irons until the time that his word came to pass. The word of the Lord tested him. And as we've seen in weeks past, quoting Kent Hughes, Joseph's story is about the hidden but sure way of God. God's hidden hand arranges everything without show or explanation or violating the nature of things. God is involved in all events and directs all things to their appointed end. Leading up to now, including Jeff's lesson last week, the Lord is and has been with Joseph, exalting Joseph, but also trying Joseph until the time that his word came to pass. It is now time. A huge shift is about to take place for Joseph and for history. All history is God's history. And today we're going to see four ways that God guided history leading up to and during the interchange between Joseph and Pharaoh. He does it first by having God's man in place. Based upon the cupbearer's recommendation to summon the Hebrew youth, and actually Joseph was about 30 years old at this time, so that's pretty good, still be a youth at 30. We'll we'll take that, right? But this Hebrew youth, right, verse uh, 41, 14, Pharaoh sent and called for Joseph, and they hurriedly brought him out of the dungeon. And when he had shaved himself and changed his clothes, he came to Pharaoh. Now Joseph had started as a favored son in his own father's household, to being sold as a slave, then to favored steward, to being a common prisoner, then a responsible prisoner, and then a forgotten one. Now that God's set, God set time has come, Joseph is prepped to be ushered out of the pit of prison. Now, let me say, during these years of prison and confinement, I suspect hygiene and style were probably not high on the list. Probably not much options for prisoners, if even available. So letting prisoners have access to anything sharp enough to shave yourself, that would probably make any prison guard a little nervous. But Joseph has an important appointment to get cleaned up for, though we are not told if he knew why he was being prepped. And shaving in Egypt was very important. Not only his beard, but in Egyptian culture at the time, it would include his head as well. Kenneth Matthews writes, Verse 14 initiates the transformation of Joseph, the Semite, into Joseph, the Egyptian. At the instruction of the king, the attendants reversed Joseph's status, hurriedly ushering him from the dungeon of slavery to the presence of the king. The change in his slave's garments to a courtier's portrays the magnitude of the change about to transpire in Joseph's fortunes. Things were about to change indeed, including that Joseph would never again wear the prison clothes of a prisoner. And Joseph is summoned to do what? To proclaim God's message as opened up to him through Pharaoh's account of Pharaoh's own dream. Thus the second way we see God guide is God's message is in place. And the message came through the dream. Verse 15, Pharaoh said to Joseph, I have had a dream, but no one can interpret it. And I've heard it said about you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. There's most certainly fear in Pharaoh's voice. He's very concerned that he will not find anyone who can answer it. He's going to repeat this in in verse 24. And he's so concerned that he's willing to take a chance on a prisoner. An unknown prisoner to him and one likely long forgotten by Potiphar. Now, what we're about to see, it's going to become less and less about Pharaoh. Pharaoh is just going to be along for the ride. In fact, it's not about Pharaoh at all. As Kent Hughes says, kings do not make history. They only serve history. Verse 16, Joseph then answered Pharaoh saying, it is not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. Joseph directs Pharaoh's attention to God, the secret-keeping, secret-revealing God. We're reminded of Deuteronomy 29, 29. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things revealed belong to us and to our sons forever, that we may observe all the words of this law. Also Daniel 2, 22 It is he who reveals the profound and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness, and the light dwells with him. Now let our hearts dwell on that and be comforted by that. The Lord knows what is in the darkness. He knows what is in our darkness. He knows clearly what is obscure to us. We can trust him. And Joseph is pointing to the uh, Elohim, not just God, but the God, the the in-the-beginning-God God. Thus to Pharaoh's face, Joseph asserts and has asserted that his God was superior to and sovereign over the gods of Egypt. In Egypt, the Egyptians considered Pharaoh to be God. In fact, Pharaoh considered Pharaoh to be God. Joseph did not consider Pharaoh to be God, was quick to point to the God of gods, the God of Israel. He's saying, in essence, if you're going to hear, you're going to hear from the God himself through me. And the text indicates that he did it with emphasis. Joseph declared, it is not in me. As Derek Kidner remarks, Joseph almost explosively disavowed this whole approach. That exclamation, it is not in me, is one word in Hebrew. It's almost like saying, not, never, cannot be. So, so so much for being deferential to the ruler of Egypt. Right? He's, he's not starry-eyed in the presence of this political power. He's not being cautious with his words. He's not looking to Pharaoh to get cues on how he should act before him. Kent Hughes writes, Joseph's theological knowledge rose high against the face of worldly power. Joseph's speech to Pharaoh was the same here as it was to the prisoners in the pit. In prison, he had declared, do not interpretations belong to God? Please tell your dreams to me. We saw that in chapter 40. Here he declared, it is not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. Hughes continues, Joseph had not changed one whit in his trip from the pit to the palace. Those 13 years of preparation were now paying huge dividends Through Joseph, God was advertising and asserting himself in Egypt. And Pharaoh did not balk. He did not push back against Joseph's declaration. Whether Pharaoh internalized it or not, Pharaoh's political position as it relates to the God is now clear. Victor Hamilton says, Pharaoh's helplessness and fear emphasizes the mortality and finiteness of the dreamer, the Pharaoh God. Psalm 2 pictures the relationship between all the world's rulers and God. Psalm 2, verse 1, Why are the nations in an uproar, and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord, And against his anointed saying, let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs, the Lord scoffs at them, then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury saying, but as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. Now, Joseph had said that God would give Pharaoh a favorable answer. What exactly does that mean to get a favorable answer? Kenneth Matthew says it doesn't mean that the interpretation is necessarily pleasant for the king. Rather, God will give him a correct answer, a right answer, an explanation that the king seeks and thus pacify his disturbed spirit. See, Pharaoh wasn't looking for someone to tell him what he wanted to hear, to tickle his ears. He was looking for somebody to tell him the truth about what his dreams meant. And desperate and still afraid, Pharaoh now says to Joseph in verse 17, in my dream, behold, I was standing on the bank of the Nile and behold, seven cows, fat and sleek, came up out of the Nile and they grazed in the marsh grass. Lo, he... Seven other cows came up after them, poor, very ugly, and gaunt, such as I had never seen for ugliness in all the land of Egypt. Gaunt means literally lean of flesh. Pharaoh had never seen anything so distressing in cattle. We could call it pitiful. Reminds me of the animals you see on the commercials. They're, they're trying to get you to open your checkbook and, and support, you know, these, right? But more than pity, this was disturbing. And his description was more detailed here than in his previous description. For now he describes them as poor, very ugly, still gaunt. Verse 20, and the lean and ugly cows ate up the first seven fat cows. Yet when they had devoured them, it could not be detected that they had devoured them, for they were just as ugly as before. Then I awoke. Then Pharaoh continues, verse 22, I saw also in my dream, and behold, seven ears, full and good, came up on a single stalk. And lo, seven ears withered, thin, scorched, scorched by the east wind, sprouted up after them. And the thin ears swallowed the seven good ears. Then I told it to the magicians, but there was no one who could explain it to me. The king concludes where he began there is no one. Pharaoh is primed to listen. He's concerned, he's frustrated at the failure of the magicians, he's terrified even of the unknownness. Of this dream. In desperation, he's ready to pay attention to one pulled out of a dungeon on a recommendation. This brings us to God's revelation in place. Joseph reveals the meaning of Pharaoh's dream. Verse 25. Now Joseph said to Pharaoh, Pharaoh's dreams are one and the same. God has told to Pharaoh what he is about to do. Now, Joseph previously declared that God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. Now it is God has told. John Calvin writes, Joseph did not say that God would declare what might happen as a result of somebody else's action, but what he himself was about to do. From this we infer that God does not indolently contemplate the fortuitous outcomes of things, as most philosophers do, but that he determines through his own will what will happen. Proverbs 21.1, the king's heart is like channels of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wishes. Now picking up verse 26 in our text, the seven good cows says Joseph, are seven years. And the seven good ears are seven years. The dreams are one and the same. The seven lean and ugly cows that came up after them are seven years. And the seven thin ears scorched by the east wind will be seven years of famine. So seven cows, seven years, seven ears, seven years, seven and seven equals seven years of famine. Verse 28, it is as I have spoken to Pharaoh, God has shown to Pharaoh what he's about to do. So we've seen God will give, God has told, God has shown. Joseph speaks boldly, he speaks prophetically. And it's interesting what smaller role Pharaoh has in where this is headed. As Walter Brueggemann explains, the future in Egypt does not depend on Pharaoh. He does not get to decide. In fact, Pharaoh is irrelevant and marginal to the future of the kingdom. Joseph has calmly announced to the Lord of Egypt that the future is out of his hands. Rather, God has shown what he is about to do. And he is about to bring a famine. A famine? You know, some. Actually, many balk at the idea that God would bring any disaster on anything. We all want a God who responds to disasters, but the thought of God bringing a disaster? Yet scripture is clear that God unashamedly takes credit for disaster, yet free from evil, any evil intent. Isaiah 45, 6. I am the Lord, and there is no other the one forming light and creating darkness, causing well-being and creating calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. Ecclesiastes seven thirteen and 14. Consider the work of God, for he is able to straighten what he has bent. I'm sorry, for who is able to straighten what he has bent? In the day of prosperity, be happy, but in the day of adversity, consider, God has made the one as well as the other. Amos 3.6, if a calamity occurs in a city, has not the Lord done it? Joseph declares to Pharaoh in verse 29, behold, seven years of great abundance are coming in all the land of Egypt, and after them seven years of famine will come. And all the abundance will be forgotten in the land of Egypt, and the famine will ravage the land. Kenneth Matthew says, The severity of the famine is so awful that the years of plenty will fade from memory, and it will ravage that is, it will destroy, it will finish off the once productive fields. Verse 31. So the abundance will be unknown in the land because of the subsequent famine, for it will be severe. Joseph continues in 32 saying, Now as for the repeating of the dream to Pharaoh twice, it means that the matter is determined by God. The matter is determined by God. And God will quickly bring it about. Again, Kenneth Matthews, double dreams convey the assurance of their imminent fulfillment. This would apply to Joseph's own dreams in chapter 37 and the two dreams of the imprisoned officials in chapter 40. The language, the matter is determined, indicates that which is established, unfailing, proven. Word quickly suggests that the period of 14 years is now underway. So not only have we seen God's man in place, God's message in place, God's revelation in place, we come to God's provision in place. Verse 33, Joseph says, now let Pharaoh look for a man discerning and wise and set him over the land of Egypt. Now some would ask, is this direct from God? Is the revelation continuing, or is this Joseph's advice? It could be a continuation of the revelation that God gave to Joseph. But if it's not, it's certainly wise counsel from one who has shown himself by God's hand to be superior in wisdom to all the seers and magicians in Egypt. And I'm sure that Joseph himself was sobered, as was Pharaoh, by the revelation of the devastation that was about to occur during the back half of the next 14 years. And if it's not revelation, it's indeed incredibly quick thinking. And it was bold, if not audacious, to proclaim this. Joseph was, and it still is, technically a prisoner. But Pharaoh, though sobered by the message and the interpretation, is pleased to have it nonetheless. And thus he's eager to hear from Joseph, who states in verse 34, "Let Pharaoh take action to appoint overseers in charge of the land, and let him exact a fifth of the produce of the land of Egypt in the seven years of abundance." Now Joseph has given the qualities in the job description of the administrator to lead the nation up and through the coming famine. It says, he should be discerning and wise. Now, these are qualities with which we're familiar from the Proverbs. Proverbs 16:21 uses these words saying, the wise in heart are called discerning. Verse 34, and let this man exact a fifth of the produce of the land of Egypt in the seven years of abundance. Exact a fifth. In other words, here's the plan. Here's the action. This is what should be done," Kent Hughes says. The knowledge Kent, uh, says so. We see that the knowledge of what God is going to do does not produce passive resignation, but aggressive action. The knowledge of God's purpose is not the end of human planning and action, but the beginning of it. The fact that God has set the future is a mighty summons to action. Hughes goes on to say, today it is precisely that which under, undergirds the tremendous energy of world missions. We know how history is going to end. It will end with people redeemed from every nation, from all tribes and people and languages. Revelation 7. So we pray, we give, we go. Now this was particularly convicting to me and perhaps it is to you as well. I can tend to let the knowledge of God's sovereignty act a bit as a sedative. A kind of, God is going to do what God is going to do. And I, I de emphasize that God's purposes includes means. God works through people and his people. For instance, evangelism doesn't happen by itself. I think of Romans 10 13 through 15. For whoever will call on the Lamb of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? How will they believe in him whom they have not heard? How will they hear without a preacher? How will they preach unless they are sent? Just as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things. The fact that God has elect people out there who have yet to proclaim The name of Christ drives missions. God uses means, and may it energize us rather than sedate us. And the fact that God will move in Egypt through a famine propels Joseph to declare the path forward. 34, again, let him exact a fifth of the produce of the land of Egypt. In the seven years of abundance. In my study, I saw the following question raised Was a fifth enough? Like, wouldn't you need like 100% to make up for the lack, right? You almost need a one to one. Well, according to one commentator, consider this Egypt was a regional superpower. And he goes on to say, we don't have as much data on their agriculture as we do for more recent superpowers, but we do. where we do have data, there's a fairly stable trend. Superpowers produce more food than they eat. It's very difficult to stay on top of the world if you're dependent on neighboring nations for your next meal. At the height of its power, Egypt was almost certainly a net exporter of food. Therefore, 100% output was already more than what was needed to feed the population. It goes on to say, the first seven years were years of great plenty, and there's no suggestion at all that the people were asked to tighten their belts during the years of plenty. Ergo, 80% of the harvest was at least as much than was necessary to feed Egypt's, Egypt's population plus their trading partners. In times of famine, animals are slaughtered in greater numbers. A, because animals are a reliable long-term storage of protein that can be utilized when other resources are unavailable, and B, because if there's not enough food for the humans and the animals, the humans get priority. Since the grain would feed humans and animals, as the animal population shrank over the seven years, the total Egyptian consumption of grain would go down each year. Also says total food production during the famine was probably not zero. So, there would still be have a marginal contribution to the food supply from ongoing production, slowing the rate of inventory depletion. And was it enough? Well, I'm stealing somebody's thunder. But yes, right? Because the uh, people show up, right, during the famine to get some food, right? Egypt wouldn't be sharing if it wasn't uh, working out very well for them. Um, Verse 35 continues, Pharaoh, or Joseph says, Then let them gather all the food of these good years that are coming, and store up the grain for food in the cities under Pharaoh's authority, and let them guard it. The agenda, three steps. Gather the food, store it in the cities. And let me just say that's that's just good logistics, right? To rather than transporting it all into one place and have this. You know, I keep it out in the regions where it can be distributed easily. Uh, and then they say, let them guard it. And I just thought, hmm, they had a theft problem back then too, right? I mean, that's an age-old problem. you got to guard what you want kept, right? Let them guard it. And to do it under Pharaoh's authority, literally it says, under the hand of Pharaoh. And just like in corporate life. Right Any idea without buy-in from the C-suite, from the CEO and the COO and the CIO and the CFO, if you don't get buy-in at that level, ideas just die on the vine. right? So here we've got this under Pharaoh's authority. so the full weight of royal authority ensures that full compliance is going to happen and their cooperation of the people. Verse 36. Joseph continues, let the food become, become as a reserve for the land for the seven years of famine, which will occur in the land of Egypt, so that the land will not perish during the famine. Now next week, Gary was going to show us, and we'll see what Pharaoh does with this information. And at the risk of being a spoiler of coming attractions, I'll simply say that Joseph's role going forward will ensure that he continues to be clean-shaven. Well, what can we make of this as a way of, of application? We can say that God's sovereignty has been dripping from the text today. Statements such as, God will give, God has told, God has shown, God will bring. A key statement from today's text was Joseph's declaration, the matter was determined. God. And we believe that it was. Now in Romans 15 4, it says, For whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction, so that through perseverance and the encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. And we are indeed encouraged when we read of God's hand in the past with Joseph. And we also believe the future is secure and determined equally as much by God. Tom has been walking us through, teaching us through revelation. We're encouraged and comforted by God's sovereignty over the end times. We're encouraged by this, the revelation of and by our Christ, the Lamb, the warrior king. But what about now? The story is told when Bolstrode Whitelock was preparing to embark as Oliver Cromwell's envoy to Sweden in 1653, he was feeling anxious about the tumultuous state of his nation. England had recently gone through civil war and, for the first and only time in its history, had executed its own king, Charles I., The army and the government were at odds. It was difficult enough figuring out which direction the country was headed, let alone representing it to another country. We probably have that problem now. The night before his journey, Whitelock nervously paced about. A trusted servant, noticing his employer was unable to sleep, approached him. This exchange took place. Pray, sir, will you give me leave to ask you a question? Certainly. Do you not think that God governed the world very well before you came into it? Undoubtedly. And do you, not think that God, do you not think that God will govern it quite as well when you're gone from it? Certainly. Then, sir, excuse me, but do you not think that you may trust him to govern it quite as well? As long as you live, we can trust him. God speaking in Isaiah 46, 9 and 10. Remember the former things of old. I am God, there is no other. I am God, and there is no one like me. Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done. Saying, my purpose shall stand. And I will fulfill my intention. Our timeless truth for today is God has the past in place, the future in place, and also today in place. I saw a t-shirt a few months back with the following inscription. And it said, Look back and thank God Look forward and trust God. We should all perhaps have such a shirt. But whether we wear it on a shirt or not, we should always be governed by its mandate. Heavenly Father, sovereign God, eternal God, ruler over all things, who sees everything clearly at once, The past, the present, the future are all to you, just a present now. You see it all. Lord, forgive us for for our lack of faith, for our our trepidation at the things that are are going on. Macro level in the world, micro level in our own lives. Father, we, we do look back at the life of Joseph and what you were doing in, in Egypt, and we say, yes, yes, we know and we see that you were sovereignly over all of that. Every aspect of Joseph's life, whether he was exalted, whether he was uh, in a pit, whether he was left to wait, everything about that, the, where he was located, when he was located, how long he was located, was sovereignly determined. And we look ahead and we do look at the book of Revelation. We do know how it ends and we're comforted and we cheer and we're ready to be part of that parade, ready to join Christ and watch Christ, our, our Lamb, Christ, our warrior king. Father, it's this middle that we struggle with. Forgive us for struggling during the day to day to trust you. You are trustworthy. You have shown yourself trustworthy. We ask that you forgive us. We ask you that you encourage us. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.